Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, just a reminder, we're doing these talks live on Zoom every week. So if you'd like to be part of it as it goes on, and there are questions and answers at the end, you can ask a question if you like. Uh, we'd love to have you and become part of the community. Just subscribe at Torah on iTunes. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, what I want to talk about today is the whole um, idea of closure. You know, closure is such a, an important part of our emotional lives. And is there a downside to closure? You know, we, we tend to think of closure being uniformly good, like, I need closure, right? Um, and, and, and closure is wonderful. It's, there is, uh, you know, psychologically, emotionally, physically, there's, um, there are tremendous benefits to it. Um, but, you know, with every, with every sort of human experience, it's multifaceted. And one of the things, it's just kind of a way of visualizing what I'm talking about. It We, we bring it up from time to time. Is is it's kind of my phrase, take it or leave it. But but I talk about this idea of doing a a three sixty around a teaching, and a three sixty, of course, that's the the number of degrees in a circle, meaning to say that when you learn something new, any any Torah concept, you have to do a three sixty around it, meaning to say you have to know when it applies, and when when it does apply, but when it applies in a sort of unexpected way. Um, and so um, I'm going to give you an example of that in our discussion about achieving closure, emotional closure um, today. God willing. So, so before we do, I just want to share with you a, a, a wonderful Hasidic story that, that was new to me. And I, I got it in the, the email from the OU. I was so glad to read it. So I just, let's just start with a, a, great, a, a great story. Um, so this is from the Sansa Rebbe. The Sansa Rebbe was one of the greatest Hasidic masters, also known as the Divrei Chaim. And, and he was a tremendous, tremendous Baal Tzedakah. Um, thousands and th- thousands, like just wealth poured into him from all around the world um, from people who wanted him to distribute it to the poor. And he was, he was such a tzaddik, he was such a holy person that until every single penny had been distributed, he couldn't go to sleep at night. So, so literally, here was a person who lived on the level of, of not going to sleep at night until there was no money in the house, that all of it had been distributed. Just to give you just, a, just an inkling of um, just one aspect of his greatness. His son, the Shinover Rebbe, who was also a, a great Rebbe, um, they asked the Shinover Rebbe, what was the most important mitzvah to your father, to, to the Divrei Chaim, who we're talking about right now? And, and his son said, whatever mitzvah my father was doing at the moment, that was the most important mitzvah to him in the whole world. So, so the Divrei Chaim was really, was really huge. Now, now here's the story. He, he had um, a special minig, a special custom, where Motzei Simchas Torah, 
So Motzei Simchas Torah is at the end of the holiday cycle, right? We've gone through Elul, we've gone through Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we've gone through Sukkot, we've gone through Shmini Atzeres, right? Like the whole thing is like done, okay? Now we're, we're at the end here. He would have a tish, he would have a, a, a big meal and, you know, with all the Hasidim present. And what he would do is he had a special segula, it was like a special kind of like mystical blessing for pernosa, for, for, uh, for livelihood, for wealth even. And what that consisted of was he would be at the head of the table and he would throw apples out to the Hasidim. And whoever caught an apple, that was this blessing for wealth. Now, given the fact that there were so many miracles by the, by the Divrei Chaim, and, um, you know, word got out that, you know, he's, he's blessing people with wealth and everything like this. And if you catch an apple, this is like a tremendous thing. So, so you can imagine if you were, uh, uh, you know, there at the time, you, you, what wouldn't you do to catch an apple, right? And so there was pushing and there was shoving and more and more people were finding out about this over the years. So more and more people were coming, which means more pushing, more shoving to the point where, those who are closest to the to the Rebbe said to him, Rebbe, you have to call it off this year. You can't do it this year. It's dangerous. It's physically dangerous. With the amount of of, of just turmoil in the in the crowd, people are going to get hurt. You, you, you can't do it. And the Divrei Chaim thought about it and he said, we're still doing it. He said, but I'm going to make an announcement beforehand, which is that anyone who pushes will receive 10 years of poverty. Whoa, so <laughs> that's, so no one wants that, right? So sure enough, you know, the gathering came and it came time to throw the apples. It's all true story. And, um, and no one pushed. Like everyone, like, you know, the words of the Divrei Chaim, 10 years of poverty, are you crazy? Nothing's worth that, right? So everyone just stood still and they, they raised their hands in the air like that, that's how they're going to catch the apple. If it comes to them, it comes to them. Meanwhile, there's one old man in the crowd who's pushing and shoving and pushing and shoving. And like the Hasidim around him are like, are you crazy? What are you doing? Don't you know you can get 10 years poverty? He says, 10 years poverty? That's nothing. I can get 10 more years of life. That's the end of the story. <laughs> so, awesome, right? Awesome. Okay, so so let's go back. Let's go back to closure, right? Right? We all know, we all love closure. Closure is a beautiful thing, right? But what about lack of closure? Can, can that ever be a beautiful thing? So we're going we're gonna to talk about it right now. So... So what I want to focus us in on is a question that um, uh, the Eretz Fee, Rav Frimer, um, asks. And it's such a basic question, but I, I never really heard it asked before. In, in a way, those are kind of like the, the best questions. They're sort of like, they seem obvious, but it's like, well, you know, it wasn't obvious until you heard him ask it, right? And then it's like obvious. So... So, so those are usually like, like the best. So, so here's the question he asks, and he's asking about the, the Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, which is, 
if God didn't want Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, why did he make him go through the entire process to begin with? Isn't that a great question? A great question. If he's going to, remember, Avraham Avinu is raising his knife, he's about to do it, and then Hashem says through the angel, don't do it. So why put him through the whole thing? Great, great question. And again, it, it, it touches on this whole idea of closure, right? So let's talk about the upside of closure. I think we're all familiar with this. Um, and... You know, therapy, I, I, they, they call it talk therapy. I think, I think Freud, um, if I'm not mistaken, was even someone who was a big proponent of this. And, and that's the idea that if you can unburden yourself, if you can talk something through, then you can, so to speak, get it off your chest and you get it out of your system and it, it's very healthy. Now, believe it or not, this thought goes all the way back to at least Shlomo HaMelech. King Solomon writes about this in, in Mishlei, in Proverbs, right? This idea that, that talking something through, like it's a, it's this, this is great cleansing, cathartic kind of like thing to do. And with this in mind, I just want to tell you something. I think this was in, um, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, one of these, um, you know, one of those great kind of like, uh, books kind of like really zeroing in on what are the differences between the way men and women relate and relate to each other. And one of the points that comes out from that book, which I thought was very interesting, is that, you know, m men are very problem solving oriented. And sometimes like they'll, they'll listen to someone who, who wants to share some sort of difficulty. Um, and the, they're thinking the whole time, or I should say, we're thinking the whole time, how can we fix this? How can we solve this? And sometimes that's not the point. In other words, sometimes the, the greatest thing that you can do is just listen. In other words, just giving the other person the ability to unburden themselves is, is such a special thing and can be a very, very healing thing. And so, in a way, it, it, it's kind of like a win-win for both sides. They get to talk, and they win by being able to just get it out of their system. You don't really have to solve anything. You just have to listen with a sympathetic ear and, and sort of be there and, and, and kind of just be compassionate. And, and that's it. That, 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 that process itself is cleansing. Okay. So... So this, I think, everything that I've just told you up until now, I think is intuitive. I think everybody already knows this already. But now let's talk about the other side of it. Um, so what's, what's the downside about having something like that's strong inside of you and, 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 and talking it out? So there's a story that I love very much because I just think it's very important for our daily lives just to know this. Um, and it's really, you know, kind of, when do I talk about something? When do I not talk about something? Because that, that's a big question. So this is a story from the Afstraf Rebbe. He was one of the greatest Rebbe's um, ever and, and lived about a hundred years ago. Okay. And biographically, I'll just tell you a few things about him because his life is so fascinating. Well, the, one thing I'll tell you about him, and this is unbelievable 
It's unbelievable that, that and it just this isn't just like I, that. He's a household name. Like he should be a household name for this reason alone. You ready? He fasted for forty years. Forty years in a row, he ate a, the tiniest bit at night, and that was it. And this was a hundred years ago. We're not talking about someone who lived two thousand years ago. So a hundred years ago, and everybody knew this. This was documented by everybody in its time. It's not like, oh, a legend arose around him about his great piety. That's not what it is. He fasted for 40 years, including on Shabbos. Now, he had the second most Hasidim. Remember, the, the capital of, of um, population-wise, of Hasidus, was in Poland, okay? Um, and behind the Ger Rebbe, who would go to his bedside on Shabbos to beg him not to fast on Shabbos, but he felt as though he needed to, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, he had the second most Hasidim behind the Ger Rebbe. Amazing thing, right? But it's even more amazing than that. How, how is it more amazing? So, so i just tell you something about the, the history of the Hasidic movement for a moment. In the early days of, of the Hasidic revolution, really, um, if, you know, if, if you were just like a, a special person, like a spiritually gifted, just totally head over heels in love with God, you know, type personality, you know, you kind of became a Rebbe. Like that, that's kind of how it happened. You just, people either made you a Rebbe or you just became a Rebbe or that's what it was. But as the... As the movement developed, and as it, you know, sort of took over more and more of the Jewish world, you know, who became a Rebbe wasn't quite as, as spontaneous as, as it was in the early days. And it became, the Hasidic movement became much more dynastic, meaning to say, um, who's a Rebbe? Well, if your father's a Rebbe, your grandfather's a Rebbe, then, then you know, you're eligible to become a Rebbe, Okay. So someone just kind of rising up out of nowhere and becoming a Rebbe, this wasn't really done anymore. And the Avstrafzer Rebbe was one of these sort of history-breaking people who, you know, at a time when the Hasidic movement had sort of become much more institutionalized, he was the son of a baker, not a rabbi, a baker, and became the second biggest Rebbe in all of Poland. Right? This is the person who fasted for 40 years. Like you say, well, you know, he's fasting for 40 years. He absolutely deserves to be a Rebbe. There's no question about it. So, and he was very great. And he was a great genius, too. Super holy. Okay, so why is he fasting so much? So, so he says, because I don't have schus avos. So, what does that mean? That, that's, we translate that as the, um, the, the merits of, of, his, of his fathers. So, so we have an, an idea uh, in Torah. Um, actually, Rashi brings it down just in terms of Yitzchak, that when it comes to the prayers of a person, if you're, if you're a tzaddik, you know, your prayers are going to go up pretty high. If you're a holy person, they're going to go up pretty high. But if you're a tzaddik, the son of a tzaddik, right, or the daughter of a tzaddik, or the daughter of a tzaddikas, right, if you've got this generational thing going of holiness, then your prayers have extra, extra wings, let's say. They rise even higher. And because his father was not an official Rebbe, 
he felt as though he had to do much more in order to get his prayers to rise like like his like like the other holy people in the world at that time, right? So okay. So at this time, uh it was sort of like a pretty regular thing for Rebbe's to go to mineral springs. They would go to these spas and they would go into these sort of like, you know, hot healing waters. People still do it today, but it was like a big thing to do among Rebbe's. And so there was this particular spa that uh, the Ufstrafser went to, and there were other Rebbe's there. And one of the Rebbe's said, it's a classic, classic Hasidic story I'm about to tell you, a uh, true story. And um, one of the Rebbe's said, you know, why don't we go around? We'll go around in a circle and each one of us will say over a teaching from our father. Okay, so obviously all of their fathers were, were Rebbe's, right? But not the Ufstrafser. So when they got to the Ufstrafser, he said, my father was a baker. Now listen very carefully. He said, and, and what my father said, right? He's saying over a Torah in the name of his father. What my father said was, an oven retains its heat when the door remains closed much more than it does when the oven door is open. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. An oven retains its heat much more when the door remains closed much more than if the door of the oven is opened. The heat goes out. So, okay, maybe you get it right away. Maybe it's still a little bit cryptic for you. So let's explain. What's the oven door? That's your mouth. So what he's saying is that, you know, let's talk about, let's say you have an idea for a new business or for a book or for a screenplay or for a, an event, you know, people have lots of ideas for lots of things. When you get it and you're passionate about it, like you're excited about it, there's a fire inside of you, there's heat inside of you for this, for this idea, right? Now, if you talk it out with everyone that you see, one of the consequences of that is that all that fire, all that heat, it just goes out through your mouth and it just disappears into the world. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's good to get a compliment because it keeps you going. But sometimes you get a compliment and you go, what do I have to do all the work for? I already was told that I'm so great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really true. It's really true. So at one's own risk, they talk about an idea that they haven't done yet. As it says, as it says, say little, do much, right? So, so that's the idea of keeping the fire burning inside. That's, that's the idea that if something is like a project, you don't want to talk about it, unless you're talking about it, obviously, with people who can help you with it and assist you with it and things like that. And, and you will be the one who will be able to make that determination. When am I just 
dissipating the heat and wanting perhaps to get a compliment so I don't have to do the work? And when am I talking about it with someone who can advance at the next step? And my talking about it is actually doing the project as opposed to just talking about the project, if you, if you follow me. Okay. So, so, so now with this in mind, let's get back to Rav Frimer's question. Because Rav Frimer is saying something really awesome here. Okay. Let's, let's, let's review his question. Why would Hashem make Avraham and Yitzchak go through this event of like seemingly sacrificing his son, right? And, and Yitzchak, by the way, being 100% on board with this. You know, if you look at the chronology of how old he is, you know, somehow many of us um, um, erroneously have the idea that Yitzchak was a young child. Yitzchak was in his 30s. Did you know that? He was in his 30s at the time of the Akedah. And... And he was 100% on board. The Midrash says that, that he told Avram, tie me really tightly because maybe I'll suddenly become afraid and like jerk and, and, and it will make a, a movement, it will make a, like a, a blemish and, 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 and the, the sacrifice will become invalid. So, so Yitzchak, you have to understand Yitzchak, Yitzchak was so on board they, that it says in the Torah that once Yitzchak figured out what was going on, the next line in the Torah is they went together. So, so that, that's, our, that's our clue, that's our hint that Yitzchak understood, like right in the text itself, what was going on. So again, our question is, why did Hashem make Avraham and Yitzchak go through this if he was going to call it off in the middle, right? If there was going to be no closure. And now listen, based on everything we've been set up until now, listen to what Rav Frimer says. He said that Hashem wanted that fire to remain inside of Avraham and Yitzchak and for it not to be let out and for it to be passed down to all future generations. Do you, do you hear that? Do you hear that? You see, listen, sometimes you get a job done, you get it done, and then you go, okay, what's next? You're not thinking about the job anymore. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, how much was inside of them to get this job done? And then Hashem says, calls it off in the middle? so that that fire should never leave them. So that fire should never leave us. Do you hear? And that should be passed down for all future generations. And all of us to this day are recipients, are inheritors of that awesome fire, that awesome passion to connect with Hashem. So now he brings as sort of like as an explanation or as a source, however you, you want to say it, something from the Pshiska Rebbe. So, so remember that was the Kutzka Rebbe's Rebbe, okay? And the Pshiska, the Pshiska Rebbe said the following. 
He said on the words we we you you'll see it in the Siddur, it's by Yishtabach at the at the end of Psuke de Zimra. We say the words Habokher Bashire Zimra, which means um Hashem like the way they'll translate is Hashem chooses songs of praise, right? But if you actually get into the roots of the word um Bashire, which which he traces to the word Sharayim, leftovers. And Zimra, which means songs, but it also means to cut, the, the leftover cuttings, that God chooses the stuff that's still inside of us. That what, what is the most choice aspect of the mitzvah? The fire that's inside of us, right? More so than the result of the thing itself. So let me explain a little bit better. Now this was, I would say, a turning point in my own kind of like um, spiritual journey, just learning this, is is the idea that um, Hashem controls all the results, but we're responsible for the effort. And it, this is a very healing teaching because, you know, we get so frustrated because there's so much that all of us want to do in our lives and things that we want to see in our lives like that are done, like, you know, and, and they're not there. And, and the thing is, is that all the results, those are all in Hashem's hands. All we're responsible for, all Hashem is asking for us is that we put in the effort. And so, so the idea is like, what is like what Avram and Yitzchak did by the Akeda, not being able to sort of like finish the job, but keeping that burning desire, like to transcend every boundary on behalf of God, keeping that inside was like it's sort of like the 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 nuclear fusion the nuclear fusion chamber of all effort like for all times and and like i say for me this is a very healing idea because it's sort of like um we 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 have this teaching in Pirkei Avos, to the effort goes the reward and so you know for some people it's uh it just things come easily you know, whatever it is, like they just, they don't have to work so hard. And there it is. They, they do it. Other people, they work so hard and maybe it gets done. Maybe they can't even do it in the end. But so, so where do you think the reward goes to? And the answer is, is that the bigger the effort, the more the reward, according to the effort goes the reward. That's that's how they phrase it in Pirkei Avos. Because that's all we're responsible for. You know, I once imagined, like, like with this principle, you really understand how upside down this world is. Right? Because this, this, this teaching actually cuts across everything. Okay? And especially in materialistic societies, like the ones that we live in right now where everything seems to be going according to what you can show on the outside. Um, so, so imagine, 
Imagine, you know, you've got your accounting book and you want to know who's doing best in this world. So, you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, who's got the biggest house? Who's got the most money in their bank account? Who's got the fanciest car? Right? And and based on this, they would sort of like say, okay, that that's that that's our barometer. That's how we're going to judge people. Okay. So now listen to this. In Gomorrah Sukkah, there's a there's a near-death experience recorded in the Talmud. All right? So near-death experiences and reports from the next world are very, very old. Um and I believe it was Rav Yosef uh, comes back, or maybe it was his son who comes back. He died, and then he wakes up, and they say to him, what did you see, right? Like, everyone wants to know, what's, what's the next world like? And he said, I saw an upside-down world. He said, the people who are on top here are on the bottom there, and the people who are on the bottom here are on top there. Very interesting. What does it mean? And I kind of came up with this explanation, and then I was very happy because I saw Rav Moshe Feinstein uh, in his book also said the same thing. So, so I'll say it in his name, <laughs> even though he didn't tell me. It's his story. Okay, it's his explanation. But I think actually this is just the straight, the straight explanation, the straight shot of what the Gemara is saying, which is the following. Um. And, and I'll explain it this way. Let me put it in my words, okay? Imagine you've got uh, two racetracks, all right? One racetrack is like smoothly paved and it's a sunny day and it's outdoors and it's just like, just a straight track, just the best conditions you could hope for. And now it's right next to another racetrack and on this racetrack, it's filled with ditches and barbed wire and there's a, a sniper firing live ammunition over the runner, right? And it's pouring rain. Okay, those are the two racetracks. They're right next to each other. And then the referee goes, on your marks, get set, go. And both of the runners start running. So the first runner goes in the, in the time allotted. Let's say he runs five miles, right? And let's say the second runner runs 30 yards. So it's like a blowout. I mean, it's ridiculous. This is, this, this is the race. This guy goes five miles. The other guy goes 30 yards. Okay. So what are we talking about here? You know, who's the person with the running on the smooth race, racetrack? That's a person who's born into a good family. He's, he's born with, you know, like a, a supportive environment with good health. Maybe the person has, you know, a degree of intelligence right? And he gets the five miles. And who's the other person? That person's got health issues. He's from a broken family. Maybe he's got learning disabilities, things like that. He gets 30 yards. So that first person, that, that first person with all the advantages, that's the, that's the person with the, the big house and the nice car. And who's the other person? That person's a person who's, you know, mopping the floors at the supermarket, right? So, so now the judge says, so we think that's the end of the story, right? So that's this world. But, but what did he say? He says the people who are on top in this world 
are on the bottom in the next world. And the people who are on the bottom in this world are on the top of the next world. What's he talking about? You know that person with a smooth racetrack with all the advantages who ran five miles? You know what he finds out? You ran five miles? What a joke. You were supposed to run 20 miles. Five miles? Are you serious? What a disgrace. You ran 30 yards? Holy smokes! You were supposed to get 10 feet! You got 30 yards? It's unbelievable! So we walk around and we say, this person's on top, he's got the house. This person's on the bottom, he's got the mop. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Everything goes according to the effort. That's, that's, that's what our everlasting finish line is. That's all God's going to be looking at. How much did you work? How much did you try? How much fire remained inside of you? Everything goes by that. All right. So, so this is really the greatness of lack of closure. Okay? Um, if, if, if we want to phrase it that way, right? The, the other side, when we do the 360 around closure, you know, you know, there's the, the upside of being able to talk something through, something that's painful and, and letting it go. There's that side of it, which is very holy and beautiful. And then there's the other side of it where you don't, you don't want to let it go. You want that fire inside of you. You want to keep on going, right? No matter what, you don't want to stop. Um, so, so with this in mind, I, w- I want to tell you something that I, I think is very interesting about Judaism, about Torah, and about our, our approach, because, because God knows this about us, and, and he wants to make sure that we stay on the right track. And I'll give you an example um, of something that we do all the time, hopefully, God willing, and it really plays into this. And that's the benching we, we say, the, 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 the grace after meals, birkat hamazon. So what's what does Birkat Hamazon have to do with this whole discussion? A lot, actually. A lot. So, you know, many traditions have this idea of um, making a blessing before the meal starts. Like sometimes they call it saying grace, right? Whatever it is. And it's sort of like we're about to eat this meal and thank you, God, and everything like that. Well, we have that too in, in Judaism. We have like, you know, we, we say in our arts, or we, we say the, the initial blessings. And so, so that's certainly a beautiful thing to do. You want to thank God for what you're about to receive. But you know something? What about after I'm full and I don't need God anymore? <laughs> you know what, God? I'm not hungry anymore. I just had a great meal. Um, to thank him then? To think about God when your belly is full? Ah, that's something else, right? You want to hear something interesting? All blessings are what we call dirabunin. They they were they were made by the rabbis. But were they are they among the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs? Okay, we have to do them all, right? But but we have to the, the ones that are 
mitzvahs deraisa, as we say, the ones that are actually written in the text of the Torah itself, have an extra special holy status. Do you know that Birkat Hamazon was not made by the rabbis? That's actually one of the 613 blessings. And why did God zero in on that blessing? Of all the blessings, by the way, the blessing over the Torah also is one of the 613, but, but, but that's more hinted at, even though it's one of the 613. This, this blessing that you should thank God after you're satisfied, it says the word satisfied, after you're satisfied, thank God, that's written very explicitly in the text of the Torah itself. Why? Because we can't ever allow ourselves to get to the place where we think, God, I don't need you anymore. I don't need you anymore, God. I, I, you know what? I was hungry. And when I was hungry, I needed you, so I thanked you. But, ooh, that, that, uh, I ate too much. I don't need you now, God. Now I'm good. This, in a, you know, we talked about last week the idea of like the kaleidoscopic nature of how God guides us through our lives. Like just like a kaleidoscope turns and it makes a different pattern and pattern after pattern. So here we are right now learning together. Later on, maybe we'll be in the park. Later on, maybe we'll be in our car. Later on, maybe we'll be in the supermarket. And that's all God changing the scenery around us. How are you going to act in this situation? How are you going to act in that situation? How are you going to act when you don't need me anymore? You know, we have it on a micro level in terms of our life and all the different locales we go to over the course of a day, over the course of our lifetime. But the kaleidoscope also turns on a macro level in terms of periods of Jewish history. So right now, the kaleidoscope has turned, and God, relatively speaking, relative to generations before us, for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, God has put us in this situation of tremendous, relatively speaking, tremendous wealth. And God says, okay, now, what about during this situation? How are you going to act during this situation? when you might feel like you don't need me. And that's why I think Birkat Hamazon, that idea of thanking God when we're full, is so essential and why it's one of the 613 mitzvahs above all the other blessings. To sensitize us to this consciousness of staying attached at all times. Now I want to tell you a story from the Haftorah. An amazing miracle story that, again, um, emphasizes the same point, but in a very different way, okay? And, and it goes like this. Elisha, one of the greatest prophets, he was the, he was the, the top student of Eliyahu Hanavi, right? Elijah the prophet. Um, so Elisha, Elisha um, was approached by this woman, and she... she was in a lot of trouble. Basically, she owed money, and um, 
and she was a very, very good woman, and they, they threatened they were even going to take her children away, right? So what's she going to do? So she goes to Alicia, and Alicia is very sympathetic. He's very supportive of her, and he says, uh, do you have anything of value in the house? She's like, well, actually, I've got one cruise of oil, one, one little kind of jar of oil. He goes, okay, here's, I'm, I'm going to tell you what to do. Go and borrow as many pots, as many vessels as you can. Like, go to all your neighbors. Like, get as many pots as you can. Then what I want you to do is, I want you to go in a room by yourself, private, close the door, not with your kids, not with anything. And I want you to pour the oil into the pot. And then when it becomes full, well, wait a second, that's already a miracle, right? You've got a little bit of oil and you're pouring into a pot and the pot's going to become full of oil. He goes, then I want you to pour into the next one and keep pouring into all of the pots, right? So so she pours and she pours and she pours and she fills all of the pots like this is an awesome miracle, right? All of the pots are filled with oil. And then she says to her children through the, through the door, bring me some more pots. And they said, there aren't any more vessels left. Listen. And then the Torah says, let me read you the exact line. Okay. This is, if you want to read the whole story, it's the Haftor of Parshas Vayera. Okay. And the, 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 the child said, she says, bring me another vessel. He said to her, there is not another vessel. And you ready for the, these words? And the oil stopped. So what I learned from this is that if you don't still have vessels for something, that means the fire for something. That means the need for something. If you allow yourself to get to that place of satisfaction, where you got it out of your system, and I'm talking about the holy things, not the painful things. The painful things you've got to get out of your system. But I'm talking about the holy things, like the fact that God gave us a job to bring Mashiach. How about that? How, how about that? You know, you're thinking, well, what do, what do I have to do? How about that? How about the fact that the world isn't finished yet? And this is an awesome job that we all have. Jewish, non-Jewish, all of us together. But if we allow ourselves just to be filled vessels and there's no more vessels, then the chef of the downpouring from above to below stops. So I think we're communicating. I hope we're communicating. And I'm just going to tell you one thing. It's a Torah that Reb Shlomo, I, I had the, the great privilege of, of being married, my wife and I, by, by Reb Shlomo Karlbach. He did our chuppah. And, um, and I'm going to tell you a Torah that he said to us at our wedding, okay? And again, another classic Torah. Um, I, I've seen it attributed to the Pshiska Rebbe, who we learned from, right? Um, which is very much in keeping with the with what we learn from him um, about that God chooses that that burning effort that that leftover desire that's still inside of us. Uh, I've seen it in the name of the Kutzker Rebbe too, his student, right? Which is 
a very strange um, curse that that Hashem gives to the snake in the Garden of Eden. This is like, you know, when when basically after the eating of the Eitzadas. So, so what happens? Well, God says to the snake, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat the dust of the earth. So it sounds like a curse, but the Kutzkarebi or the Shizkarebi, whatever it is, looks at it and says, wait a second, what kind of curse is that? He's going to eat the dust of the earth. The dust of the earth is absolutely everywhere. Wherever he goes, he's going to have a meal. <laughs> he's going to be like, the, the rest of his life is going to be a catered event. Like, what kind of curse is that? So, so this is very, very deep. So the curse is, is that Hashem said, you know something? Here's everything that you need. Take it and don't talk to me anymore. In other words, our needs are the currency of our relationship. We, we, we make a terrible mistake. We think of God as an ATM. And when we press the button and the 20s don't come out, we kick the machine and we're like, what kind of ATM are you? It's like, God, what kind of God are you? I'm, I'm praying for this thing. You have everything. You can do anything. And you're not giving me this thing. Are you broken? And we lose sight of the fact that we're in this relationship and, 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 and that need is like one of the rocket engines fueling this relationship, fueling this closeness. And of course, God gives to us exactly what we need, when we need it, how we need it. And to the extent that we aren't getting it, the answer isn't always no, often it's just not yet. And it's always coming from a place of goodness and love, even if it's painful. So, so that's the idea. So Reb Shlomo told us that Torah, and then he said to the two of us, never stop asking. You see, we have to uproot this idea that sometimes you feel like you get something good, or maybe even get something great, and then, oh, I don't want to ask for anything more. I'm just going to seem like this greedy person. No, that makes you like the snake. Keep on asking. Don't stop asking. Don't stop asking. Don't let your vessel be full. Don't not say birkas hamazon, right? Don't say, oh, I'm full. I'm done. Think, you know, I think to before I eat, that, that's, that's plenty, right? Right, because this is the, the nature, or viewing it from this angle, this is another insight into what we call devekis kai. Devekis, that means cleaving to God. This is, this is what the whole world is for, what all the mitzvahs are for. Everything is just for this thing, that we should be in this constant striving close relationship, asking God for absolutely everything. You know, Rebbe Nachman was so big on this. He said, animals receive without asking. Right? And, and he, he criticized one of his close chassinim. He said, 
Are you are you are you too too proud to ask? You too proud to ask even for a small thing, like to pray for absolutely everything. And 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 the classic example is someone broke their shoelace, and and the Rebbe said, "Did you pray for a new shoelace?" And he's like, "Rebbe, pray for a new shoelace." He's like, "That's beneath you." So. <clears throat> So we'll we'll end here. We'll end here. I just want to bless everyone that 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 we should never ask, stop asking, never stop asking, and and just keep those vessels coming. You know that there are always more vessels, so that there's always more downpouring of blessing for all of us, and to know always that Hashem is the one who absolutely loves us the most. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.